take your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 6. We are still excavating Ephesians. We're currently in chapter 6. For eight weeks now, we've been in the section here that talks about the armor of God. We are given the instruction to put on the whole armor of God that we might be able to stand, to withstand, and having done all to stand. Our battle is not carnal. Amen. Our battle is spiritual. We're battling against spiritual wickedness, the Bible says. And we need to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Ephesians chapter 6, let's begin by reading verses 14 through 18. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Remember, this is God's armor. You cannot get this armor unless you enlist in God's army. Through the new birth. And so it's God's armor, and really every piece is God. As we break this down, we'll see that. The, he's our truth, amen? God is our truth. He's our righteousness. He's our peace. He's our, the one we put our faith in. He's our salvation. He is the Word of God, and He's the one we pray to. And so God is our armor here. And so, in a sense, we would say we're, we're putting God on. You say, well, that sounds kind of weird. Well, not according to the Bible. Romans 13, 14 says, But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. For the last three weeks, we've considered our need to have our loins, our core, girt about with truth. Our stability is based upon being surrounded by the truth of God's Word. And remember that truth here is a protective measure. We will see later on in verse 17 how the Word of God is offensive, but here we're talking about our protection because of truth. It protects our core. It protects us from false doctrine. It protects us from false teachers. To have our loins girt about with truth, we must be in the Word of God. And we must be in a church that preaches the Word of God. We've got to be reading, studying, memorizing, meditating upon the Word of God. And it's truth, I'm just recapping here by the way, and it's truth which binds us together. We are bound to God by truth. We are bound together as a church body by truth, not our emotional experiences. I think you know by now I'm not against emotions. I'm rather for them. But emotions will fluctuate. And there's times we may not feel as good about things as we did last week. But truth never changes. So when our emotions may take a negative turn, we always have truth to go back to, know what the Word of God says, and that is what keeps us anchored. And then I took a week to highlight truth versus hypocrisy. And what we're seeing in America is a result of what happens when there's no truth in the land. This is one of the reoccurring themes we find the Old Testament prophets being told by God to go and preach. Preach against the fact that there's a lack of judgment. Preach against the fact that there's a lack of equity. 
Truth had fallen in the streets. And that's what we're seeing today without a doubt. Lastly, I mentioned uh, we must allow truth to direct our mission. That's what we talked about last week. Truth directs our mission. It's the truth of God's Word that gives us the objectives that we have as a church. What we need to do. How we follow the Lord. All these things are in God's Word. So it's truth which directs our mission. And if you get truth wrong, you're going to get the rest of the pieces of the armor wrong. Because if you don't have truth right, and you go to put on the breastplate of righteousness, what is, what is righteousness? What is true righteousness? What is salvation? What is the Word of God? What does it mean to have peace? What does it mean to have faith? If we don't have truth right to begin with, and I believe that's why God led the Apostle Paul to write this first, we have to have our truth settled if we're going to go forward and put on these other pieces of armor. And so we don't want a corrupted view of these things because once we have a corrupted view, it's going to affect the workings of these pieces of armor. Now for tonight, I want to move to the second half of verse 14 where we read, we need to have on the breastplate of righteousness. Now the breastplate covered the soldier's chest down to the abdomen area to protect his heart, lungs, and his innards. I was having so much fun trying to choose which word to use. There's innards, there's entrails, there's bowels, there's intestines, and I thought, no, innards sounds the best. (laughs) Protect his innards. The breastplate was secured at the bottom by the the girdle, by the belt, and that was to help keep everything in, in place, so it's all tied together here. If you were to suffer an injury in your your chest area, your stomach area, you're more likely to die, right? Especially in those days. And you could suffer a wound maybe on parts of your arms, your legs, depending on what was hit. And, but if you suffered a, an injury to the, the chest area, it's not good. And so that's what it was to protect. So when we look at this spiritually, what is righteousness? If we're going to put on righteousness... What does that really mean? Well, there are seemingly different definitions for what righteousness means, but I want to give you the two most popular ones out there, and you'll see they're actually intertwined. You can't separate the two. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is a great verse, and many of you know it. It says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so in Christ, as born-again believers... We are made righteous in Christ. He takes away our unrighteousness and we get His righteousness imputed to our account. There's nothing about the carnal man that's righteous. Nothing. Paul put it this way, as for me and my flesh there dwells no good thing. And so this carnal man is, is, is unrighteous. Therefore, we must be born again. And His righteousness justifies our right standing before God. But in trying to define righteousness, it goes beyond just a transfer of Christ's righteousness to my life. It goes beyond that because simply put, righteousness means living right. Right living, maybe we could put it that way. If you want to just give a very simple definition. That's righteousness. 
Both these definitions are intertwined because both are about character. That's what I really want to focus on tonight. There's Christ's character, His righteousness imputed to us, and then there is our character, which is determined by whether or not we are living righteous lives. And here's the deal. It's not just enough to know what truth is. We talked about truth in the first part of the verse. It's not enough to know what truth is, but you also have to live out that truth. Amen. A lot of people know stuff, but does it impact their life? And so you you don't just want to be this person that is filled with all this truth, but your life's a mess. Amen. This Wednesday night, just say amen and look like you're innocent. Amen. Truth gives us understanding and righteousness is obedience to that truth. We're not called to be proclaimers of unapplied truth. Everybody catch that? We're not called to proclaim unapplied truth. We don't just say this is what truth is and you need it, but it's done nothing for me. But we are called to live what we know. And for those of you that know the Word of God and God's revealed some things, reveals probably the wrong word, but you've, you've learned some things through the Holy Spirit's leading and teaching, God now expects you to live by that. I expect my children to live according to what I have taught them. Righteousness is living right, and it's a life which lines up with the Word of God. In 1 John 2, 6, it says, He that saith he abideth in him, in other words, he that says he abides in in Christ, ought himself also to walk even as he walked. If we say we are of Christ, we are to walk as Christ. Ephesians 5, 1, Be ye followers of God as dear children. Remember that means be imitators of God. And we're not just to be saved but we're to live like it. We're not perfect. Amen. But we are to be progressing in our holiness, in our sanctification, in our righteousness. It's a righteous life which demonstrates our belief to others of our belief in God through Christ, the way in which we live. If a person says they are a Christian... Does that mean they are a Christian? If a person defines Christianity and they can explain Christianity, does that make them a Christian? No. Being able to say you're something and being able to comprehend that doesn't make one a Christian. Now, have you seen those children who their parents could not deny them if they wanted to? Because they look just like their parents. And you look at that child and you go, man, there there ain't no denying that kid. And that's how Luke used to be before he got better looking than me. That's like the Christian life. When you're God's child, He begins to conform you into His image. A person is a Christian. Listen now. 
A person is a Christian when they begin to look like the one who they profess to be born of. 1 John 2, 3 and 4 says, And hereby we do know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He that saith, I know Him, and keepeth not His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, to be a Christian means to be Christ-like. And I, oftentimes we use that word to, in, in general, and I'm sure you do it, and I'll continue to do it, but it means to be Christ-like, to be like Christ. And there are many who profess to be believers, and they may be, but they're not necessarily Christian in their character. Christians are aiming to be like Christ. And like a child, we are not perfect. We are not always perfectly obedient to our Heavenly Father. But the desire is there. And there is shame when we disappoint our Heavenly Father because of our sin. There ought to be something in you when you sin against God that says, man, I know I shouldn't have done that. Now, you can put it in whatever words you want. I don't know how to word all that, but there ought to be something in you that gives you that, that sense. We know we are in God when our lives are changing. So is your life changing? In Christ, we are a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And someone can tell you they are a child of God, and someone may be able to spout out right doctrine, but we know they are what they say they are when we see it lived out in their life. You understand how important this is tonight to evangelism? If you say you're in Christ, there ought to be evidences, there ought to be fruits. People ought to be able to tell there's been a new birth in your life. There was no doubt when a new child came into our house. There was no doubt about it. There was a new kid showed up. There should be no doubt about it when you get saved. A new kid has shown up. Now, I want to try and give you some, some of the benefits. And we're not going to get to them all. I already know that. Some of the benefits of having the breastplate of righteousness on. The first is certainty. Certainty. When people don't put on the breastplate of righteousness, they struggle with the certainty of their salvation. Because when does doubt of salvation begin to creep in? It's when we don't live victorious lives. And we live defeated lives. And people say, I, I, I just don't feel saved. Of course you don't. You're living in sin. Amen. That's when you got to go back to truth. Did I actually obey the truth to begin with? When doubt begins to come in, you lose that certainty because you're not living righteously. When we doubt we're living unrighteous and we begin to think, well, am I really saved? If I was saved, then would I be doing this? Some of you may think I'm walking a fine line between grace and works, but I'm not. 
you know what it's like. If you're in Christ tonight, you know what it's like when your relationship with Him is not right. You know what that's like. You know what it's like when your wife is angry at you. I've never experienced that, but she's experienced that from me. She's perfect. See you at the altar, girlfriend. Look, you know when things between you and your spouse aren't right. You know something's up. And so you know what it's like when you're not in a right relationship with God. And when these things come into your life, and you realize this, that that is meant to be a self-correcting sense that you're getting. It's to get you to the point of realizing, I've got to confess my sin and get this right before God. Because if you don't, I'll tell you this, God will bring other circumstances into your life to break you, to get you to the point, to chastise all these things, to get you to the point of confessing your sin and getting back to right living. A righteous life is not only certainty, but a righteous life is also joy. This kind of ties in with the last point a little bit. We know this is true because when the child of God lives an unrighteous life, they lose their joy. They lose their joy and they become miserable. When David confessed his sin in Psalm 51, he said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And then he said, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Sin in his life had robbed him of joy. If he would have lived a righteous life, he would have not lost that joy. So putting on the breastplate of righteousness, it puts us in that joy of the Lord. You can't have real joy when you're trying to always hit a moving target. Like David, you won't find lasting joy in lustful relationships for a number of reasons. But one is that that appeal you think you have, it's eventually going to go away. And you're not going to be that stud that walked off the football field 30 years earlier. Amen. You're not going to be that homecoming queen that put on the crown 30 years earlier. I'm trying to say this. You're, you're, you're shooting at a moving target because eventually that's going to disappear. Now, I still look as good as I did. Exactly. Amen. Yesterday. Thank you, sister. And it's been that way every day. You're not going to find lasting joy in your health because health is a moving target. Your health changes. Your health will fail at some point. The strength of your youth will vanish over time. You can't find lasting joy in your family because family members pass away. And unfortunately, some family members will turn on you and they will leave you and they will forsake you. You can't find lasting joy in your children because they'll grow up one day and they'll move out and start their own life. And that's usually when two people look at each other and go, who are you? Man and wife look at each other. The kids are raised and they look at each other and go, I don't even know who you are. Why? Because somebody had found joy in their children. And some people get the bright idea, well, we just have another child. 
Try to recapture that joy. You're, you're chasing a moving target. By the way, just let God give you all the children He wants. Amen? But I'm just saying. It's a moving target is all I'm saying. You can't find lasting joy in career success. Because careers end. In some careers, somebody younger and more educated comes in. It's a moving target. You can't find lasting joy in material possessions of this world because the Bible says moth and rust are going to corrupt that and thieves are going to break through and steal. There's no joy, everlasting joy in these things. You're not going to find everlasting joy in these moving targets because they change and you're going to lose them. They are going to become damaged. Some are going to fly away from you. And, and what you need to do is just learn to fix your joy on the one thing that never moves. And that's God. That's His Word. All these other things that you chase after and you think they're going to bring joy. And they may bring you a moment of happiness, but it doesn't last. How many in Hollywood have we seen who have made millions just to commit suicide? Because they never found joy. Psalm, 1, or Psalm 16, 11 says, In thy presence is fullness of joy. And at thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. You won't find joy in the pleasures of this world, but you will have real joy when you know that you and God are like bark on a tree. When you and God are close. When you and God are inseparable you'll start to have joy. Amen. Why? Because He is our joy. There's real joy when you know God is smiling upon you. There's joy when you are trying to bring your body into subjection. There's joy when you're giving it your best. There's joy when you're trying. And there's joy when you're learning as you go. Again, I'm not saying that you've reached this level of perfection. But there's joy when you know, I'm doing what I know to do. Yes, we falter. Yes, and all these things. But listen, we get back up. Because we have a God who will forgive us. And so there's joy in this. If If you could go to youth camp, and you could watch the countenance of those teens, you'll notice a difference. Because they get down there in this environment where cell phone coverage is sketchy at best. There's no television. There's no internet cafe. They're getting preached to four hours a day. They're having morning devotions. The, the, the boys with Brother Long, the ladies with Sister Long, they're being prayed over every morning. And they get in this environment where really what's happening is they're putting on the breastplate of righteousness and they may not even realize what's happening. Is they're getting into a righteous environment. Is everybody with me? And when they get in that environment, all of a sudden you begin to notice there's a change that starts to come over them. It's in their countenance. It's observable. You can see it. And about day three, the confessing of sin begins. The desire to live a better life begins. The, the understanding that God can use my life. And all these things begin to happen in the heart of that child because what they have done is they have come apart from the world that is so filthy and so corrupt. 
and doesn't care for their righteousness and they get into an environment where all of a sudden that's all they really have around them. Don't get me wrong. If somebody wants it bad enough, they're going to find unrighteousness. But I'm just saying those who will just allow camp to do what camp does, all of a sudden they get into this this mode of uh, there's a joy that comes over them. There's joy in holy and righteous living. That's what I'm trying to say. I know we can't all live on a compound in the Rocky Mountains. (laughs) I wouldn't want you there. I just want to be by myself. Amen. But if you're living a life of sin and unrighteousness, then there's no joy in your life if you're a child of God. And all you're doing is you're constantly chasing this moving target. Righteousness is our certainty. Righteousness is our joy, and righteousness is our, and this is, this is a really important one tonight. Well, they all are. But righteousness is our credibility. It's our credibility. In Acts 24, 16, it says, And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. 1 Thessalonians 1, 5 says, For our gospel came not unto you, in word also, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Paul was saying, I have purposefully lived in such a way that my credibility and my integrity cannot be questioned. You ever have, you ever have somebody do something to you and you begin to wonder, did I do something wrong? happened to me tonight. As a matter of fact, I was driving in and I turned down here at the light where the gas station is, the loafing jug. And no kidding, these two ladies were standing there and she just had a scowl on her face and she was pointing at me as I drove by. And I thought, oh, immediately I thought, oh, what, what did I do wrong? But if we live righteous lives, I guess I'm confessing to you, amen. <laughs> if you live a life where your integrity can't be questioned and you have credibility, you don't have to worry about that. And so Paul here is saying, look, I've lived in such a way that you can't question this. And so he wasn't giving unapplied and unobservable truth. He was saying, I have truth. You can observe it in me. You can see it. This is how it's applied. I have the breastplate of righteousness. But without the breastplate of righteousness tonight, you have no credibility. Paul, in, he, he's writing to the Ephesians here. You remember when he was in Ephesus, revival broke out and people began to burn their books of Curious arts, the Bible says, and it was worth 50,000 pieces of silver, the books that were brought and burned. And the local God maker there named Demetrius, he rallied the other God makers, and he's like, hey, we're in trouble. He was beginning to realize my financial stability's in a flux right now. I may lose some of my business. And so he was going to take a financial hit. He stirred the city into an uproar. Everybody remember this? He stirred the city into an uproar. And the Bible says in Acts 19.28, they were full of wrath and they cried out, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And for two hours, they chanted this out. Finally, the town clerk steps in and he's able to peacefully dismiss the assembly. And he was able to do so by appealing to the character of Paul and his followers. In Acts 19.37, it says, "For this town's clerk says, Ye have brought hither these men, which are neither robbers, 
nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. This, this town's clerk says, look, you have seen their credibility. You've seen their integrity. You've seen their Christian character. And that situation went from an uproar to a peaceful dismissal. How about that? Do you have that kind of Christian character? Now, I know you don't come to hear me preach because you think I'm sinless. (laughs) And I know you know better than to lift men up on a pedestal that the Bible doesn't allow. But, let's suppose you observed me on a Friday night exiting a nightclub holding a liquor bottle with my arm around another woman stumbling to my car. Would you still come hear me preach on Sunday morning? Maybe you come to me and you ask if what you saw was correct. And I say, yeah, that was me. But don't worry about what I do. Because all that matters is what I say. And what I say is true. What's the likelihood that I would have any credibility with you? What's the likelihood I'd even get to be your pastor? You would rightly brand me as a charlatan. And whatever credibility I may have would be instantly gone. And once you lose credibility, it's hard to get it back. Now, why do we all agree with that standard for the pastor? What about your own life? I understand there's a qualification for a bishop. I get that. But what about your own life? You can pick whatever sinful scenario you want. Would you really come listen to me preach week after week and preach one thing when I'm openly living another? Now, since we recognize that as a problem, let me get back to the home here. How about your children? How about your family? How about your co-workers? How about your friends? Can they really listen to you preach to them about their need for Christ through what they're observing in your lifestyle? Or is there language issues? Is there, I don't want people looking over my shoulder issues? Is it, well, they know I hang out with them at the bar? Whatever it is, whatever lifestyle it is. Is your message to your children verified by how you live before them? I'm not at liberty to say the name, but someone had come to me and battling sin, and and he said this. He said, "I have. It's it's not my parents." He said, "My dad lives the most righteous life I've ever seen." Can they say that about you? If not, the day is coming when that child who has been told they need to get up and get ready for church, they'll look at how you live and conclude, why do I need God in the church when it hasn't done a thing for you? But if you put on the breastplate of righteousness, then you have credibility because you're living right. Righteousness gives us certainty. It brings us joy. It makes us credible. And righteousness makes us bold or competent. Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. 
When there's a lack of righteousness, there's a lack of boldness. And you'll really never feel like you can appeal to others to come to Christ. And it's a lack of righteousness which dampens our, our testifying, our witness, our evangelism, evangelism, whatever label you want to hang on that. Now, anyone can say bold words. As a preacher, one of the most difficult things isn't being able to stand up here and preach a message like this. Because I know it is truth. But the difficulty comes in trying to live a life which gives me the credibility to preach boldly. Because authority will not go any wider than our parameters of obedience. I preach this because this is what God has called me to do. That's why I preach. But I also want to be effective in teaching others how to live because I have learned how to live the Christian life. It's very difficult to tell you how to be a godly parent or a godly husband or a godly Christian in general when I'm none of those things. Everybody with me? I mean, you see me beat my wife and I get up here and try to tell you how to be a loving, godly husband. What are you going to think? And so we have to live a life that backs up what we're preaching. It's way better when I practice the verses that I show you. And I hope you're not expecting perfection up here, but you understand what I'm saying. Now, of course, Jesus was sinless, but He's still our example in all things. Jesus said in John 8, 46, Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? Now that's boldness and righteousness right there. Jesus could say, since you cannot say that I'm a sinner, then why don't you believe the message that I bring? That's boldness. You might say, yeah, but that was Christ and I can never measure up to Christ. He was sinless. Okay, no argument there. I'm with you. But what about the boldness of the Apostle Paul? He was not sinless. He was not perfect, but listen to his boldness because of his right living. 1 Corinthians 4.16 says, Wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. 1 Corinthians 11.1, Be ye followers of me, even also as I am of Christ. Philippians 3.17, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an ensample. And in Thessalonians 3.9, Paul said, We made ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. Are you living righteously enough that you can look at others and say, Be ye followers of me, even as I also follow Christ. The righteous are as bold as a lion. Now, I'll leave it there for tonight. But we need the breastplate of righteousness. It gives us certainty, joy, credibility, boldness. If you are not as effective as you would like to be to those around you, then perhaps you need to examine this area of righteousness in your life. Can you reach others because of your life? I'm not one of these lifestyle evangelism guys. You've got to open your mouth and talk. But your life does matter. Your walk needs to match your talk.
basically needs to complement one another. Breastplate of righteousness. Let's pray.